Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. It's Monday, April the 4th, 2022, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Well, today we are continuing our study on the book Image Bears, and we are going to be looking at chapters 6 and 7, which is about the fatherless and strong men. And so today we are talking about strong men and the fatherless. And many may not think that this is a pro-life topic, but however, as I hope we will see in Ephesians and Genesis, God created men, women, family, and human flourishing with his precious order, ultimately to defend, protect, and ultimately nurture the life that was created in his image. And so we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5 and looking specifically at verses 22 through 33. However, before we go there, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. As we know, Ephesians is a manifesto about the supremacy of God to reconcile and then to unite his people. But it's also a book that deals with what relationships look like in respect to the gospel. And the passage we are looking at this morning in Ephesians chapter 5 contains the longest statement in the New Testament on marriage and the unique relationship between husbands and wives. The foundations of marriage have been eroding since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. And as we will see in this passage, Jesus came to redeem marriage because it ultimately is a reflection and a picture of the way that Christ relates to his bride, the church. You see, families have an enemy, and it isn't the culture, it isn't movies, television, or the government. The enemy is the same enemy introduced in Genesis chapter 3, the great serpent, Satan. From the beginning of creation, he has warred against God's design. He has been bent towards destruction and absolute decimation of everything that God has called good in creation. God designed the picture of marriage of the husband as the head and as the wife as the helper in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, God creates man, and instead of creating man and woman at the same time, he creates man first. God gives Adam responsibility for the care of creation. And then before Eve was even created, God gives Adam the command in verses 16 and 17 of Genesis chapter 2. He says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Man's responsible for the care of the garden and the obedience of God's creation. Man is established as the leader in this picture from the very beginning. And then we see in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 2 that the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in place of its flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There was no suitable helper found for Adam. And so God creates woman. So we see this picture from the very beginning of marriage of the man as head and the woman as helper. And it's a supremely good thing because they are working in harmony together. 
This is woman and man united in consuming love for each other in a satisfying way. You get to the end of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25, and we see it says the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's Hebrew for things are going really, really well. This is harmony and intimacy with man as the head and woman as the helper. But then almost immediately as we turn the page into Genesis chapter 3, we see that sin marred this beauty. We can't overlook the posture of the God-designed family during the temptation of Genesis chapter 3. God had made the man and woman as complementary. He had given the man the role of leader and the woman the role of helper. Woman was made for man because he was incomplete without her. It was man's role to love the woman, protect her, and point her to the Father. God's first commands were given to the man before the woman was even created. His single prohibition was contained in these commands in Genesis chapter 2, 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And the very next thing out of God's mouth in verse 18 was, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. It was man's job to lead the woman and to guard her heart. It was his job to help her understand the goodness of God and his great love and ultimate protection. The first sin was aided by the apathy of the man. Satan was already working to bring enmity in God's perfect relationship. He was tempting the man towards being weak and apathetic while tempting the woman to take the role of the leader. When Genesis 3 begins with the first temptation and utterly the fall of man, make no mistake, the attack was supremely against the relationship between God and his creation. But ultimately, it was also an attack on the horizontal family as well. So that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. And the war on the traditional family was on and raging. What came next was murder, polygamy, incest, fornication, homosexuality, men abusing their wives, prostitution, abortion, and divorce. This is why men of God, we need to seek God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls, and to love our wives as we love ourselves. We need to take up the weapons of this war and fight back for the sake of our marriages, for the sake of our families, and for the sake of the gospel to the nations. This is why men of God, we need to seek God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls, and to love our wives as we love ourselves. Our great God calls himself our father. He compares himself to the groom seeking after his bride, the church, and as the father who pursues his prodigal son. Men, we are image bearers of the godly pursuit. Our wives are craving our leadership, and our role is vital to our children. Don't miss it, beloved. Satan hates family and has been at war since the beginning with the beauty God created. So as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come your way. The Bible has a triad of the most vulnerable that we see show up in almost every book of the Old Testament. And these are the fatherless, the widow, and the alien. Have you wondered why consistently the word of the Old Testament is fatherless and not orphan? The reason is because literally God was saying any child without a father is vulnerable. This is certainly not to say that a child without a mother is not vulnerable, but in God's economy, every child needs both a mother and a father. Fathers, unfortunately, are more likely to go missing or to desert the family, and this makes those children vulnerable. 
But then we also see that those who are widows are vulnerable as well. Those who have lost their husband. The reason because man was to model the character of God, which is a protector, a defender, and a provider. And as we see this ideal of a man, many times we look around today and we cannot find that ideal. My good friend Rick Burgess co-wrote a book with Andy Blanks, and the book was called How to Be a Man. And he says this in his book, examples of what a real man is can be hard to come by. The problem is simply that you're starving for good examples of what a man is. Some of you don't know exactly where to look for that model. Some of you look around and what you see gives you mixed messages. Is your model the over-the-top, super-competitive, hyper-masculine guy who never met a challenge or a person he couldn't conquer? Or is your model the 20-something who has failed to launch and spends his days sleeping and his nights playing video games in his parents' basement? Is your model the workaholic adult in your life? Or is your model the gender-neutral guy who thinks all of this masculinity talk is kind of crazy? Even the godliest guy you know isn't a perfect example. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus makes it possible for you to have an identity that is completely found in himself. Beloved, we need strong men who model Jesus. And I hope we will see in Ephesians chapter 5, the model set out for men to reclaim leadership in their family and their role to defend the fatherless. It is extremely important that we understand that until we have a strong basis in our marriage, in our home, our display of mercy and justice to the vulnerable will be ineffective at best. Our God is a God of balance. He wants our lives to be lived for his glory. But in order to be effective, he must reign supreme. And our marriages and our families must take the next priority so that we can be well balanced and healthy and and being able to serve in the kingdom. So let's look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wife. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We see in verse 32 that the mystery of marriage is profound. John Piper of Desiring God Ministry says, Marriage is meant to be a living drama of how Christ and their church relate to each other. So let's look at three foundations of the mystery of marriage. Foundation one, the supreme meaning for marriage is for the glory of God. Verse 22, 24, 25, 32, and 37, over and over again, reference marriage back to the glory of God. The glory of God is the ultimate aim of marriage. We see that everything in Ephesians 5 revolves around the glory of God. Ultimately, we see that marriage exists for God more than exists for husband and wife. This permeates the whole passage. Everything comes back to Christ. So the question in marriage that we must first ask, is God the Lord of our lives and are we submitted to his lordship? If we are worshiping our spouse or looking for our spouse for fulfillment before looking to the Lord, then we are going to end up dreadfully disappointed. 
I could try my best to love and cherish my wife, Ashley. However, even on my best days, I fall dreadfully short of supplying what she needs. She doesn't need an imperfect husband to supply her deepest longings. She needs Christ Jesus to meet her ultimate needs. When two people submitted completely to the Lord, enter into marriage, looking not to be satisfied by the other person, but to give out of the overflow of Christ, then marriage looks glorious. Beloved, we know that we are imperfect people who are prone to wander and sin, but if our base point is seeking Christ, our marriage will grow in richness, tenderness, and reflect more of the glory of God. This, this, beloved, is our aim. Marriage is for the glory of God first and foremost. And the second foundation of the mystery of marriage is the supreme hope for marriage is the grace of God. This is good news, beloved. The God who ordained marriage is the one who gives the grace to sustain marriage. And we need abundant measures of grace daily in marriage. Take Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 20 and apply that to marriage. That means that marriage is the bringing together of a man and a woman whose throats are open graves and tongues practice deceit. Marriage is the bringing together of a man and woman who's, who the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Does this encourage you? <laughs> this is far from the picture that movies and television paint. And this is far from the mystique of dating. Marriage is the bringing together of two sinners for the glory of God. And every marriage has a major problem, sin, and the only solution is a savior. We need the gospel every day to empower us and enable us. The gospel is the only hope for our marriage. It tells us who we really are, but it ultimately shows us who Christ is and displays his grace for us. The truth is Christ is enough for your marriage. For Ashley and I, our biggest disagreements are so simple. Oh, but they show how complex is our depravity. My marriage needs Jesus and his grace. And this brings us to the ultimate foundation of the mystery of marriage, which is that the supreme picture of marriage is the gospel. So God's glory is the ultimate aim. God's grace is the ultimate hope. And the gospel is the ultimate picture. This is the core of Ephesians chapter 5. We see in verse 32 that this is a profound mystery, and it refers to Christ and his church. So when God created marriage in Genesis chapter 2, he destined it to be a picture of the gospel. And this, this is a mystery. Wives give a glimpse of the church to the world. Wives are consistently giving a glimpse of the church's submission and respect for Christ as she respects and submits to her husband. And then husbands give a picture of Christ to the world. Husbands give a picture of the way that Christ nourishes, cherishes, and loves the world as he consistently loves and nourishes his wife. Think about all those in the Old Testament. They had marriage, but they didn't get the true picture of what marriage looked like and ultimately how it relates to redemption. Abraham was not a great husband. Moses was not a great husband. David committed adultery. Solomon had so many wives and they failed to get the true picture of marriage. Marriage is like a metaphor or an image or a picture or parable that stands for something more than a man and a woman becoming one flesh. It stands for the relationship between Christ and his church. That's the deepest meaning of marriage. Marriage is meant to be a living drama of how Christ and the church relate to each other. This brings tremendous responsibility for both the husband and wife to glorify God in their marriage. But remember, beloved, your hope is in the grace of God. So let's look at the primary responsibility of the man in marriage, headship. 
Headship is not a popular word in 2022. Headship is the husband is head of his wife, mirroring how Christ relates to his church. Headship is not controlling, but it's lovingly serving. Headship is not an excuse to abuse, silence, or lord over a wife. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Notice this is not talking in any way about worth or value. This is not giving a picture of inferiority or superiority. Galatians 3.28 affirms that we are all equal in Christ. Headship is a picture of leadership and responsibility. Husbands are to mirror how Christ loves his church. Beloved, the simplest way to see this is to remember that Jesus himself bound himself with a towel. He got down on the floor and he washed his disciples' feet. The bridegroom serving the bride. But not for one minute did any of the apostles in that room doubt who the leader was, even in that very moment. And don't forget that Jesus submitted himself willingly to persecution, to being mocked, to being scourged, and to being crucified on a cross. And even in that moment, the centurion looks up at Jesus and says, surely this man was the son of God. This is why we see that headship is divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. For husbands, as we read in Ephesians 5, I hope we understand and see that the responsibility of marriage is harder on us than it is on our wives. The world sees these verses as chauvinistic and downgrading towards women, but in reality, this is a gut check for men. It's our responsibility to love, care, protect, and provide for our family. It's our responsibility as well to be submitted to the Lordship of Christ so that when our wives submit, they're ultimately submitting to Christ. Wives don't need husbands who are the most successful in the culture's eyes or who are the most macho. Wives need a husband who is fully submitted to Christ. So in turn, he loves and leads in a way that draws his wife closer to Christ. And this reminds us that headship is not a right to command and control. It's a responsibility to love like Christ. Husbands can control and command wives in an abusive way, but also can try to control and command her as if they're the Holy Spirit. Husbands can become demeaning of their wives and harsh towards her sin struggles. So this reminds us of three observations of headship. First, the husband is like Christ. He's not Christ. The husband is like Christ, which means he is not Christ. Verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. The word as there does not mean that the husband is like Christ in every way. The husband is finite in strength, not omnipotent like Christ. The husband is finite and fallible in wisdom, not all wise like Christ. The husband is sinful, not perfect like Christ. Therefore, husbands dare not assume that they are infallible. But this brings us to the second observation. The wife conforms ultimately to Christ, not to her husband. The aim of a godly husband's desire for change in his wife is conformity to Christ, not conformity to himself. Notice the key words in verses 26 and 27. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her. Verse 27, that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Verse 27 again, that she might be holy. These words imply that the husband's desire for their wives are measured by God's standard of holiness, not their standard of mere personal preferences. And so the third observation, the husband is willing to die for his wife. 
Paul draws attention to the way Christ pursues his bride's transformation is by dying for her. Verses 25 to 26, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. This is the most radical thing that has been or could ever be said to a husband about the way he leads his wife into conformity to Christ in the covenant of marriage. Are godly husbands pursuing their wives' conformity to Christ by lording it over her or by dying for her? Are they dying to themselves? Are they dying to their own preferences? Are they leading with contempt? Are they leading with compassion? If a husband is loving and wise like Christ in all of these ways, a humble wife will feel like she is being served, not humiliated. Christ clearly desires for his bride to grow in holiness. May God give us the humility and courage to measure our methods by the sufferings of Christ. Brothers, our headship is to reflect the love, of, love and character of Christ. So in summation, headship means that the husband is to sacrifice and love his wife while providing for her and protecting her all as a reflection of Christ. Now notice something about protection and provision. The reason they stand out is that they are so basic. Without protection and provision, life itself is threatened. So the reason these two rise to the surface so quickly is that if a husband fails in his leadership here, there may not be any other place to exercise it. The life of the family hangs on protection and provision. Life itself must be protected and nourished or it ceases to exist. The very fabric of humanity, the very fabric of our cultures rest on the family. And what is family? It's the place we find protection and provision. So brothers and sisters, if we don't have strong men, it leads to fatherless children. And fatherless children lead to abandoned children. And abandoned children lead to all types of issues that we see in our culture. We need strong men who are going to love well their families and provide and protect their families. But there's another reason these two stand out. Protection and provision both have a physical and a spiritual meaning. There is physical food that needs to be provided and there is spiritual food that needs to be provided. Husbands need to protect against physical threats to the life of the family and spiritual threats to the life of the family as well. Pastor John Piper says again, he says, when a man senses a primary God-given responsibility for the spiritual life of the family, gathering the family for devotions, taking them to church, calling for prayer at meals, when he senses a primary God-given responsibility for the discipline and education of the children, the stewardship of money, the provision of food, the safety of the home, the healing of discord, that special sense of responsibility is not authoritarian or autocratic or domineering or bossy or oppressive or abusive. It is simply servant leadership. And I have never met a wife who is sorry she married a man like that. Because when God designs a thing like marriage, he designs it for his glory and our good. The way we love our wives reflects Christ. And so we love her unselfishly. We love her by laying down our own rights. We love her by carefully cherishing and nourishing her. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Brothers must love their wives tenderly with compassion. Men must love their wives completely. Wives will never give the husband the respects he needs until he loves her without expectation for something in return. Beloved, when we have healthy, God-fearing families, we begin to see a picture of health. 
which will sow the justice of the kingdom to the world. And so, beloved, strong men who love their wives, protect and provide for their families, and who defend life are an important ingredient of our pursuit of truly being pro-life. Thank you for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. This week, we are praying for Ethiopia. We're praying for the country and for the children and for the church in Ethiopia. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with the leaders of Ethiopia. Lord, as they lead this country with integrity, as they lead this country in the way that they should go, we pray that the leaders would be wise and that they would not be evil, but that they would lead with prudence. They would lead with love and they would lead with integrity. Father, we also pray that the leaders of Ethiopia would reevaluate the adoption laws and intercountry adoption. We pray that they would evaluate what's best for the waiting children there in Ethiopia. We also pray for our unadopted partners in the country of Ethiopia and for continued opportunities. Lord, we know that so many children, Lord, have just struggled since the shutdown of so many Western and other organizations from serving in Ethiopia. And Lord, we just ask that you would equip the church there in Ethiopia to truly care for orphans. Lord, we pray for the waiting children of Ethiopia. We ask that you would keep them healthy, that you would provide for their safety, and most importantly, that you would reach their hearts. Would you equip the local church in Ethiopia to minister to these children? We pray for families who were once in the Ethiopia process as they continue to pray through their next steps. Pray for also the families in the post-adoption phase that they would love their children well and point them back to their country of origin. Lord, we praise the Lord for families who are still committed to Ethiopia and the children there, even after the closure of intercountry adoption and the shutdown of so many orphan aids. Lord, we pray that you would give wisdom to these families and help them to know what the next step should be as they seek to minister well to the children of Ethiopia. Lord God, we know that you love this country. We know that you love those people and you created them in your image. So Lord, we pray that you would make your gospel shine throughout Ethiopia. And Lord, that as your gospel shines, that children would be reached for your glory and for their good. It's in your name that we pray, the name of Jesus. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study. Thank you.